Weighing the Risk was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, we consider various market scenarios to help prepare for the certainty of uncertainty. Each month, we examine top-of-mind economic or market topics and consider the probability and possibility of various scenarios that could impact your investment portfolios. These scenarios are distress testing, like photos are to social media. Remember to look at where you're going to, not what you're going through. Welcome to Weighing the Risk. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we will weigh some of the potential scenarios and risk regarding immigration and discuss some potential future scenarios on how immigration might impact the economy and financial markets. That's with our guest, Don Rissmiller, Chief Economist at Strategus. Welcome to Weighing the Risk. I'm Rusty Vanneman, the Chief Investment Officer at Orion. And welcome, Don. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yes, indeed. Well, to set today the stage for today's presentation, again, the motivation for this podcast is to help financial advisors and investors prepare for the certainty of uncertainty, to consider what is probable in the markets, but also to consider what is possible. The scenarios that we discuss in this podcast are built off concerns that are top of mind for many advisors and investors. With that all said, let us talk about risk and scenarios. We're going to bring Don back in. And Don, a tradition on our podcast, of course, is what we think is often the toughest question and that is we need a walk-up song to set the tone and the background music for this interview. What is your walk-up song for today's interview? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I'm a, I'm a fan of classical music. I always liked uh, Holst, the planet suite, and I especially like Jupiter. So I think that would work. Very nice selection. Awesome. Our, our playlist has been expanded. Thank you very much. So, Don, uh, before we really get rolling, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you do at Strategus? Sure. So after school, I went to work for the New York Fed in 1998. I worked in the business conditions unit there. I helped with the macroeconomic forecasts. I spent three years doing that. Then I went to a brokerage firm, ISI Group in New York City for five years, where I learned a lot. And then in 2006, there were three of us, Jason Trenert, Nicholas Bonesack, and myself. And we formed Strategus to offer exclusively macro research. Uh, it's been an adventure. It's it's not always fun, but it's it's always interesting. Yeah, indeed. It always is. So, Don, before we dive into the meat of today's interview, and given this podcast focuses on risk, how do you define risk? And how do you think advisors and investors should think about it? Sure. So, I would think about it in two ways. The first, approaching it from the lens of an economic analysis is about balance. And so the purpose of macroeconomic policy in general is to balance supply and demand. So then you can have markets that clear, then you can remove frictions if possible. And so the goal of policy is to move growth around in time to try to stay as close to trend as possible. And so if you think about monetary policy as an example, you want to stay close to what the economy can do in a steady state so that you don't go up into hyperinflations or down into depressions. And avoiding those type of big pitfalls lets you grow uh, close to your potential. That'd be the first, so balanced growth. Uh, The second would be the policy setting. And so Uh, The risk depends on whether the policy setting at any given time is restrictive or easy. So if you have a shock, let's say an oil price shock, this has been in the news recently for 
uh, obvious reasons. And so if policy is easy, you might think that that type of shock would be passed through into inflation. If policy is restrictive, however, I would think of that shock as hurting growth more because policy is already putting a lid on what demand can do. So it hits the consumer in their wallet uh, very quickly. So the policy setting, I think, is also informative in the way that I would think about where the risk lies. I like it. Thank you very much. All right. So let us think about the top of mind issue with many financial advisors, investors now. And I think it's very interesting. This topic has been requested on multiple occasions. That is the topic of immigration. And I think the motivation behind it is how it might impact the labor markets, either positively or negatively. And indeed, this topic has been a touchstone of U.S. political debate for some time. And I, the question is really, are these concerns legitimate and what should advisors and investors be thinking about them? First, just a couple quick comments as a backdrop, which I think are pretty interesting, is currently the United States is home to more foreign-born residents than any other country in the world. In 2021, immigrants composed almost 14% of the U.S. population, which is, by the way, near an all-time high for the U.S. population going back to late 1800s, which actually is still the high, barely. Immigrants do make up even a higher percentage of the workforce, up 18.1% of the U.S. civilian workforce in 2022, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and that is up from 17.4% from the previous year. And one more stat for me, Otherwise, Don, you've got all the stats, is a 2022 Gallup poll found that 70% of Americans surveyed considered immigration to be good for the United States, but that is a notable 5% decrease from the year prior. So, of course, you're a leading economist, and it will be interesting to your take on what impact these concerns have on the economy and the markets. And then I will also have... I'll do some scenarios. I'll do a baseline scenario, and then I'll do a good case scenario, and then I'll do a bad case scenario. So before we get to all those scenarios, I'm going to ask you some basic questions about immigration and the economic backdrop. All right. So my very first question is, so again, we've had consistent demand for a podcast and scenarios based around immigration. So do you believe there is a connection between immigration and the economy? Do you think it's a major input? And how do you factor it into your models and decision-making? Sure. So we can think about this from a first principles uh, approach. And so there would be a potential output, a potential GDP growth that the economy could produce year after year in the long run. And often a shorthand that's used for that is to look at population growth and productivity. So it's hours worked and then output per hour that gets you to output. Uh, and those are some of the fundamental inputs. That's not exactly right because it's not just population growth, it's really workforce growth. Uh, so if we make that uh, small adjustment, uh, we can really say that there is a framework from which to, to analyze this. And so if we think about population or workforce growth coming domestically or through immigration, that in the long run over time will help support potential GDP growth. Uh, and so it's also possible that having a dynamic economy could uh, create better productivity growth, an exchange of ideas, uh, greater innovation, greater invention. So uh, directly and through uh, association, this can be viewed as an economic positive 
in the, the medium to long run. It often takes time, and this can create uh, a political issue as well, but just purely from a theoretical economic point, you can see how increasing this factor in the potential GDP equation would be good for potential GDP growth over time. One quick follow-up on that. How do you, in general, answer the question when people ask you to define timeframes? So you say medium-term and long-term. Do you have a general rule of thumb on that? Yeah, I guess short-term I think of as you know quarters or years, you know, one year, uh, two years, uh, medium-term, five years, long-run, 10 years. Rough uh, yeah. numbers there I think we can work with. That makes sense. So I do believe the fundamental driver behind these questions and concerns regarding immigration is really how it will impact the domestic labor market. And as of this recording, we just had a notable labor report where employment was twice as strong as expected and early reports were even revised higher. So what is your current assessment of that report and of the labor market situation? And what do you think this means for the economy and markets moving forward? So the U.S. labor market still looks very, very tight here. So by numerous measures, it looks like we're at full employment. And by some measures, it looks like the labor market might be still uh, in a state of overheating. We have an exceptional number of job openings. We have a very low unemployment rate. We're continuing to create jobs in the payroll report. So the domestic labor market is, is very, very strong here even leaning towards overheating at the moment because it's creating wage pressures, which are showing up in average hourly earnings and the employment cost index and other wage measures. Well, since you brought that, that kind of ties into my next question. So I think a top concern among many advisors and investors remains the uh, higher than expected inflation and higher than expected interest rates. Of course, a tight labor market, all else equals means higher wages. So what is your current assessment of inflation, the Federal Reserve and interest rates and the path forward for each? Yeah, so very important questions, especially getting the, the policy mix right over the next year or so, which I think is a, is a critical issue for investors. So there has been some pretty clear progress on inflation. So if we look at the CPI, we were running about 9% inflation. We brought that down close to 3% before rebounding a bit. So there has been some significant progress on inflation. And a lot of that has been in the goods sector, removing bottlenecks. So clearly uh, there was uh, an issue over the last three years as supply was restricted. So prices rose, there were uh, issues with infrastructure, there were issues with the ports. Uh, and so we have moved through some of those supply chain pressure issues. And so we're seeing the inflation numbers come back down. We're not seeing the price level uh, come back down, but we are seeing the inflation numbers uh, start to come back into territory that looks closer to uh, previous decades, but not exactly, right? We're still above the 2% inflation target that the Fed might use on their favorite measure, the PCE, as an example. And part of the reason for that is in the service part of the economy, in particular, something like services x housing, there's a close tie to the labor market and labor inputs. And so what we'd want is uh, what I'd say is a healthy wage increase, a wage increase that's sustainable. And usually to think about that, you'd want to add the inflation target plus the productivity growth rate of the economy. So if the inflation target is supposed to be two, productivity for the last year has been about one and a quarter. 
that's not too far off the 10-year uh, average here. So uh, if we add those two together and we say there certainly can be wage increases, but if they're above, let's say, 3.3 uh, or so, three and a quarter or, or so, you would create pressure on the economy that could start to create leapfrogging. And what you don't want to see is some sort of wage price spirals start to develop between firms and workers. Uh, and I don't think that's happening yet. I don't see evidence that we're in a wage price spiral, but I think the fear is this is a threat we haven't seen in probably 40 years, and that's expressing itself in union negotiations. It's expressing itself uh, in some of the wage data, and that's a, a consequence of a very tight labor market that we're living with. Indeed. All right. So given all the above considerations, let's get back to the perhaps the biggest question, and that is what are your expectations for economic growth and how that ties into corporate earnings growth? So the concern that I have right now, and we started out with this idea of risks being related to the balance in the economy, is that the type of growth we're getting isn't terribly balanced. So let's say we have 6% nominal GDP growth but it's 2% real and 4% inflation. Uh, that's not a good balance because there's an entity, the central bank, the Fed in this case, that wants that inflation number lower. They believe that the target should be much lower. And so they have to act by mandate uh, and uh, they are. And so we are in a position of restrictive monetary policy by choice. And when we're dealing with restrictive monetary policy, the goal is to slow the economy down, to generate below potential growth, to try to get a better mix uh, of activity. And so uh, that has not happened yet. The economy has been resilient. And when we've had threats to the economy, like we did in the banking sector back in March, we have patched those pretty quickly. So if there's not going to be failure in the economy, then there is not as strong a transmission mechanism for policy to the economy as there would be otherwise. And so by patching all of these holes, we're still in a situation where the economy looks like it needs restrictive monetary policy, given the mix between real growth and inflation. And in that world, you have to think about risks that skew to the downside until the Fed says mission accomplished, we're comfortable. And to tie it back to labor, I would say I don't think that the Fed can say mission accomplished until you have a balanced labor market, until you have labor supply equaling labor demand, removing that wage pressure. And that's what hasn't happened uh, yet. And that's why I still think we have to at least keep the possibility of a recession or a downturn on the table as we go into 2024. All right. So... You're an economist, and I asked all the questions. So what other variables do you focus on when evaluating the economy? I just asked sort of these basic questions. Is there anything else you think advisors or investors should be thinking about regarding the economy? So what we try to do is operate in two steps. So there are coincident indicators and there are leading indicators. And so the first step is to try to find something that's giving us a lead. And so something like the yield curve has a good historical track record. That's been inverted, obviously, for the past year or so. Uh, when we watch something like housing permits, especially single unit housing permits, that tells us where the housing sector is likely to go in the future. So it has a lead. When we look at manufacturing, we'd focus on something like new orders. 
because that gives us a view into how uh, the sector will function, given the order book, into the, the future. And so that's the first step, trying to figure out where the risks are, whether we're looking at leading indicators that uh, would be increasing or decreasing or suggesting risks are skewed one way uh, or the other. The second goal then is to say, well, is the stronger, more timely data, uh, more definitive data that we have that is really coincident confirming that? Uh, and so the leading indicators have been suggesting some concern really for the better part of a year. The coincident indicators though uh, have been hanging in there. And, and so if we look at something like payroll growth, that would be a coincident indicator, uh, as would industrial production or real income, X transfer payments, um, real manufacturing and trade sales and the like. And so we have leading indicators suggesting some risk. We have coincident indicators suggesting we're hanging in there. And so now we have to try to uh, assess where we go from here. And again, we look to see if we're balanced or imbalanced. One way we've been able to generate uh, coincident indicators, which have been okay, is we are supporting the economy through fiscal policy, even though we're trying to slow it down through monetary policy. So for an economy that looks like it's at full employment or at least close, we have an awfully large budget deficit. And so again, that can work. There's nothing saying you can't do that for a year uh, or two. Uh, but as we go out into the medium or longer term, the five to 10 year horizon, that's really not the type of policy that looks sustainable. We're already starting to see interest cost rise. We've seen interest rates rise. Uh, we've seen the Fed say they have to think about being higher for longer in terms of where they set rates. Uh, and, and so, again, the, the goal to have long run sustainable growth is to uh, create an economy that's balanced, create a type of growth that can persist without generating runaway inflation or inflation that is above the target. Uh, and it looks like we're, we're not there yet. Uh, and leading indicators suggest that the Fed is still working to try to get that adjustment. And the federal government is fighting the Fed. And that's what's allowing this to take some time or making this take some time, depending on which viewpoint you want to have. Kind of a follow-up on all that is this business cycle is obviously different than the rest. And when you've talked about some of these historical relationships and how they tie into the economy, I've used the highly technical term that the economic data is just weird. I mean, we had a pandemic and then we had fiscal monetary response that we get a lot of data points, a lot of headlines, like this is the biggest in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 60 years, we're getting all these sort of headlines because the data is just so extreme in so many ways. This has been a very unique business cycle. And I mean, what are some of these unique considerations that make this cycle so much different in your opinion? I think so you touched I, upon I a few it, of them. Yeah, no, and I think all those are right. And if I were to just sum it up, I would say it's that the, the economy has been asked to do things for several years it wasn't designed to do. So uh, we had a very large shock in 2020 and we had a very large policy response uh, immediately after that. And so one of the goals of that response was to get consumer spending back to trend. And if you look at inflation adjusted consumer spending, uh, it went back to trend. 
The mix, though, was in order to do that with the economy impeded, parts of it closed, we had to consume a whole lot of goods and not many services for 2020, 2021, really into 2022. Uh, and, and so when we preserve income, but bunch it into the goods sector, which is not what the economy was designed to do, it's not shocking. We have a, a big shock in goods prices. When everybody tries to do the same thing at the same time, we we bottleneck. And even as we've worked that off, we're dealing with the lingering consequences of that. So that shock, which has mostly passed at this point in the goods sector, supply chains have cleared, supplier delivery times have normalized. We are still seeing residual echoes of this in, in the service sector, in labor negotiations, in contracts uh, that are being written. And so that's how inflation can get embedded or get sticky. Uh, and again, I don't think this is as bad as some of the historical episodes like the 1970s. I don't think that's the best example here. But you know, it might be somewhat similar to the 1940s. You uh, had an economy that had to adjust after World War II. And there, there was fear at the time, if you go back and read some of what the economists at the time were thinking, there was fear that there would be a recession because the economy was not adapted to the, the world it had to, to live in, 1946, 1947, 1948. So as time went by, the economists were expecting a recession, expecting a recession, expecting a recession. Didn't happen really until late 1948 into 1949. Now, what was interesting is in that period, there was very little correlation between economic variables and the stock market. So uh, if you looked at industrial production versus the S&P as an example, sometimes they were positively correlated, sometimes they were negatively correlated, sometimes they were zero, uh, there was zero correlation. Uh, finally, when you had the flush in 1948, everything reconnected. So after a, a good amount of time, the economy reoriented, the economy reconnected with the stock market. You had one more flush because there was a recession uh, in 1949. But then from there, you had a sustainable bottom. What was interesting is that level that the stock market needed to correct to, to set that firm bottom was basically right around the low of the last three years. So you were in a range for several years, but you didn't have to go make a big definitive new low uh, after several years of chopping around. Basically, you were able to digest the recession through time rather than magnitude, just because the economy and the markets were so disconnected as they were trying to adapt to a different, uh, a different sphere, a different way of uh, operating going forward. So there are some things that you know, aren't perfect examples, obviously, but they, they rhyme. Uh, and, and I would look to those to try to make some sense of the current environment where we have these disruptions. That's a good example. I went back all the way 60 years, but you're right. You got to go back nearly 80 years for the post-World War II experience, which, of course, was the last time we had such a strong fiscal and monetary stimulus come into the economy. So that's a good point. Now, I did say that when I'm talking about the economy and some of the data points, I use, use, I use the word weird, which I don't think you probably use too much in your economic analysis. But I will give you a chance to use the word weird here because now we come to my scenarios. Hopefully, you don't say weird. You're much more gentle than that. But I'm going to give you three scenarios. And so kind of my base case, and then, of course, a good case and bad case. And 
I just really kind of looking out for the next 12 months plus. So this would actually fall into your shorter term category. And in these scenarios, quite frankly, I have immigration as a minor input, that there are some other variables I figure are still larger drivers potentially of the, uh, the economy and the markets over the next year. So my base case is a couple of these are market related. So I have the S&P up about 5%, the 10-year treasury at five and a quarter, and the unemployment rate at 4%. So kind of my thoughts behind this is that immigration policies basically remain the same, and some immigrants are being allowed to enter the workforce. Um, wages will remain mostly inflated, forcing the Fed to continue its hawkish higher for longer interest rate policies. Uh, stocks will struggle due to valuations and the higher interest rates. Uh, bonds, which have struggled this year, will continue to struggle in this environment. At least rates will move slightly higher. And unemployment will also rise slightly. And the persistently tight job market will continue to be an obstacle to the Fed in their mission to bring inflation down to the target level of 2%. That's sort of my base case. Where would you push back or nudge me slightly in different directions? Or you can nudge me really hard if you want. <laughs> no, no, I think that's certainly reasonable. Uh, if we have the unemployment rate up to 4%, historically, that's enough to register at least as a mild recession that would be consistent with the SOM rule. So in that environment, it, it would be uh, somewhat odd for the tenure, let's say, to, to not show any response. So I'm not sure you would go... Uh, down as much as you would in yield in prior cycles. In other words, if this were a recession call in uh, a prior cycle, even five years ago, I would think we'd expect a very aggressive Fed. We'd expect the 10-year the yield to fall dramatically. So that's different. They're in a different regime. But um, the unemployment rate rising even that much might be consistent, at least with a, a very shallow recession. So maybe... Uh, you would have a 10-year yield that's a little lower, maybe a stock market return that's more flat. But these certainly are within the, the realm of what I would consider possible. That does make sense. And it's hard to debate an economist on that. So uh, 10s, as of this recording, are still below 5%. So I had them just nudging above it. So perhaps the answer is somewhere in between. Great. Thank you. So the good case, again, when I say good case, I'm usually referring to what it means for the stock market. And in this case, I do uh, have uh, stocks up in the low double digits, 10 to 12%, the 10-year at four and a half, unemployment rate four and a half percent plus. And in this case, uh, the government does take steps to augment immigration as a potential remedy for some of the job market tightness, which could have positive long-term implications for the economy and markets, even though it could cause a slight uptick in unemployment. Inflation, inflation could resume moving lower relatively soon, and the Fed could begin to slowly cut rates. And if this happens sooner than expected, the stock market may do pretty well on the expectations for future growth. And then again, if the Fed does in fact begin to cut rates, a 10-year will likely drop slightly in terms of yield and with more workers, but not likely far beyond its natural level. Companies will continue to hire potentially at a growing rate if the Fed is able to cut rates. So that's kind of the good case scenario. Where would you yeah, push that, on this? That all fits uh, in, in my mind. To some extent, this is the elusive soft landing as I see it. And so... Uh, I guess my concern here would be that if we're doing this by adding labor supply, uh, I, maybe we would want the uh, the immigrants to take open jobs rather than uh, compete for existing jobs. I mean, one of the cushions here is the extensive amount of, of job openings relative to unemployed individuals. 
in the U.S. And so you're trying to absorb that uh, through through policy or through another factor. And, and so I mean, it would make sense to me that you, you don't usually have this option because you don't usually have so many job openings relative to the number of unemployed people. But if that's the unique starting condition and you address that through a, a policy uh, that is uh, both uh, going to allow individuals with the right skills to be in the right location through a legal means, I can see how that gets you this soft landing that otherwise usually doesn't happen, but has a chance in this case with these conditions. So Aaron, anything is possible. That's one of the things we try to say on weighing the risk. Awesome. Thanks. All right. So the bad case, again, at least for the stock market, in this case, uh, S&P does go down uh, 5 to 10%. Uh, the uh, the 10-year treasury continues to rise. Actually, I throw a 6% handle on here just for scenario planning purposes. Unemployment rate goes to 5%. Um, in this case, uh, the, if the U.S. restricts immigration, it likely won't help the tight job market, but wages will outpace inflation, in turn adding to inflation costs and not helping the American consumer. Interest rates will stay high and move higher, negatively impacting businesses and the housing market. And again, of course, bond yields will go up with a higher inflation. So again, this is sort of a scenario where inflation stays high, higher than expected, and therefore interest rates stay higher than expected as well. So I guess my concern here would be, is this really bad enough uh, when it comes to, let's say, equity market performance? And so uh, yeah, the inflation remaining higher than expected is, is really damaging because I think the central bank has written their own research on how if you're going to make a mistake, don't make that one. Right. Uh, so if, if you're going to have a recession, that might be a part of the business cycle that you have to accept. But at the end of the day, it's your responsibility as a central banker to make sure inflation is anchored. So if inflation starts to uh, reaccelerate, you may have to be aggressive again. And so you may not be able to uh, have an unemployment rate that uh, doesn't go 200 or 300 or, or, or so basis points higher, uh, which would be more typical for for a downturn, um, and so domestically, you would be creating uh, creating problems. So maybe you need a, a bigger decline in the the stock market or a, or a bigger increase in, in unemployment in that case. Great, thanks for the nudges. Great. So closing question here. So are there any other risks that you think investors should be thinking about? I think we've covered a lot of ground, but are there other risks we should be considering? Yeah. So the. Uh, the unique starting conditions of this cycle that we mentioned is cushions. Uh, do those cushions go away? In other words, we've done a lot over the past year and a half. When oil prices rose, we used the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. When we got close to the, the debt ceiling, we used the Treasury General Account. We had bank pressure. We created a new acronym with the BTFP uh, at the Fed. But that gives us a unique ending condition which is uh, we still have banks tightening lending standards and we have uh, now reached a point where government debt and deficits probably can't be ignored the way they were in the past decade when interest rates were low and inflation was low. So uh, you know, the uh, consequence of not having the downturn here in 2023, in my mind, still leaves open some of the residuals that that has left us with. And I think those are where some of the primary risks sit as we go into 2024. Great. 
Well, thanks again, Don. I do really appreciate this. So again, for listeners, uh, this conversation, again, does lead into the Orion Risk Intelligence scenarios. And for more on that, on Orion Risk Intelligence scenarios, go to the Orion website. And then within Orion Risk Intelligence, there will be a hamburger menu in the upper right-hand corner, and the scenario dropdown will be there, which includes a scenario library, stress testing, hedging wizard, and past war room webinars. So Don, thanks again. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Appreciate the chance to be here. Yes. That'll do it for this month. Invest well and be well. If you have any feedback on this podcast or suggestions for scenarios, please let me know in my email, rusty at orion.com. Thanks for listening to Weighing the Risk and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. And we'll see you next month. Thanks again for listening. I truly appreciate you giving us some of your invaluable time to listen. I hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might like some of our sister podcasts in Orion. First, we have the weekly The Wang Machine podcast, which I co-host with Robin Murray. The topics we cover are intended to be of interest to financial advisors and investors to hopefully make the markets and investment strategies easier to understand. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance. It's New York Times best-selling author Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. For more, including commentary, videos, and other great content, please check out the website, orion.com. Go to the resources drop-down menu and find me, plus a wealth of content I create just for you under Thought Leaders. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next month. Weighing the Risk is hosted by Rusty Vandeman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion. If you have any feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send me a note at my email address, rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including from our podcast guests, are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon on the basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants considered reliable. Thank mm-hmm. you.